The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is indeed a wondrous story. The whole thing is a wondrous story. That you would create, though you didn't need to. You would oversee and, and providentially steer the events of, of centuries and centuries of the lives of individual people and the, the workings of civilizations. You would then bring to a head a great plan to send a Redeemer. You would bring him born as a baby, fully man, and then you would show us also that he is fully God. And you would redeem in a way that, that boggled the mind that no, no eye saw, no person imagined. But you thought of it and you executed it and you accomplished redemption. And then you have told us all about it and walked with us through the days of our lives here now, centuries later, still continuing to redeem and to repair promising one day to finish the story and take us home, those of us who follow you, trust you. It's a wondrous story. And you have shown us pieces of that story here in the Gospel of Luke, itself a wondrous story. Told by Luke that we can be assured of the truth of these things. We can see them and understand them and grasp them and surrender ourselves to them and find life in them because in them we find you. So Lord, I, in some sense now I'm, I'm praying for the next few minutes here as I preach, but I'm also praying in thanks for the last, I guess it's been years that you've taught us through Luke. I want to say thank you for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have unpacked this story for us and pressed it into our lives and made it real. And now will you teach us in the next bit here over this final passage, will you show us, will you remind us, will you encourage us, will you build us up with this? Will you, maybe you bring conviction. But I pray particularly that, that you would leave us where your people are left in this book worshiping in joy. Leave us there, please. Show us your goodness, build your church, and honor your name. Make Jesus clear. Spirit of God, will you do what we cannot? Will you touch human hearts? Make truth run. Make it real. Affect change. Glorify the Son. Save people. Sanctify people. We can't do those things. We can just speak in English. We can listen in English, but you can speak to the heart and accomplish change. And so we ask you to do that. Build your church and honor the Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the final section of the Gospel of Luke. It's a passage that provides some summary for the whole book, while also sitting within the context of chapter 24 itself. This chapter has presented to us three different post-resurrection encounters, all surprising in their own way, all designed to show us the facts in, in circumstance and in the Scriptures, 
to establish beyond all doubt that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and then raised back to life again. And that that was all according to the plan of God. First, we saw the women at the empty tomb hearing it from the angels. Then there were the two disciples traveling home to Emmaus. They heard it from Jesus directly himself, though, of course, he, he concealed his identity for a time so that he could show it to them in the scriptures first. And finally, last week, Jesus bodily appeared to his disciples, making a point of his genuine, physical, bodily presence, making sure that everyone who was there touched him, grasped him, felt the skin and the muscle and the bone, saw the scars and touched them, watched him eat. He has a body that works. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to reveal this was always what was planned. This is all happening according to plan and according to mission. The plan, the mission of God, how in Jesus God always planned to provide forgiveness of sins by turning from one's own efforts at morality. This, this turning is important. By turning from one's own efforts and depending on one's own efforts at morality and obedience and turning instead to Christ's efforts, to Christ's work, his sacrifice, payment for our sin. That, that, that turning, that's repenting. Repenting is not doing different things. It's changing perspective and trust. A changed perspective and trust from trusting myself to trusting Christ and what he has done. That's repentance, and it will lead to forgiveness. That was always the plan of God. Repentance for forgiveness of sins offered to all people on the earth. Call that, calling out to them, repent and be forgiven. It's God's plan, God's purpose in sending Christ. And it's our mission now as the church sent out to proclaim that to everyone, everywhere, which is a daunting task as soon as you think about it because everywhere is a lot of places. And everyone is a lot of people who have a lot of different perspectives. That's a hard thing. But it's made possible because of what, or rather who, is promised in verse 49, the last verse from last week promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit coming. For us now, come. But for them, coming. That leads us to our passage this week because we'll touch on that again in the final verses. I'm going to read these final verses and make three observations from them that are both from the passage but also in a sense are, are about the book and what the book is supposed to to show to us and, and move us towards. So it's about the passage and also, in a sense, a little bit of a summary. Two things going on this morning. Let me read Luke 24, verses 50 to the end. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The end of Luke. Three observations and here's the first. Jesus is enthroned as God's promised delivering king. Jesus is enthroned as God's promised delivering king. A major point throughout this gospel that Luke wants to confirm for his readers. So they understand who Jesus is and understand that Jesus is the one God promised. It's the point of the book. It's here in this passage also. Verse 50 reads as if it's right after verse 49, as if it happens immediately following. But from elsewhere, like Acts chapter 1, we know that there's a 40-day there's a period in there in which Jesus appeared countless other times to hundreds of other people throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. 
So Luke knows that, but he presents it all here kind of packed together because he wants these things to follow one right after the other. He's about to depart. And so he led them out as far as Bethany. But he doesn't just leave, like riding off into the sunset. He lifts up his hands to bless them. And if we read, we see he's, he's blessing them in the moment of his leaving. But he's not just leaving on his own power. He doesn't vanish. He doesn't just walk away. He is, it says, taken. He, he is set apart and carried up. He's taken, he's lifted up by God the Father. This is the final divine heavenly mark of approval. Jesus is taken up into heaven. He ascends bodily. Acts 1.9 says that he's lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. which is the reverse way of talking about something that we have already seen, I mean, which should be on your mind as you read this passage, as you think about this moment. Back in chapter 21, verse 27 there, following 25, 26, 27, Jesus is, is in the middle of a long discourse about things that are going to happen in the future. It's a complicated section, and we talked about that before. I'm not going to dive into all of that again. But what we saw there is a couple of verses where Jesus is saying in symbolic way, everything's going to be changed, turned upside down. And they will see the Son of Man as he comes in a cloud with power and great glory. Things they, he said, that his disciples would see. They themselves and be encouraged by. Talked about this before. The important point for this moment is that what Jesus is talking about there in chapter 21 is not initially, not, not initially, what we Christians often think of and describe as the second coming of Christ. It's coming to earth. Not initially. Now, briefly, yes, he will come to earth on the clouds. The angels in Acts 1 say that very thing. They're standing there looking at heaven, up into heaven. He says, why are you men watching him? He's going to come back in the same way. He will come on the clouds to earth. But the first coming is to heaven. From the perspective of the throne room of God, he comes on the clouds. That's what Jesus is talking about first in chapter 21. You may recall Referring to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes on the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom and a throne. That's what Jesus said would happen. That's what they're watching happen right now. Like Jesus told them, they are now seeing it with power and great glory. He is coming on the clouds to the throne room of heaven, taken up by God to sit down and reign. So seeing this, there is no doubt left to us about who he is. There's no doubt left about, about where he is or, or where he stands or really rather where he sits in the cosmic scheme of things. This is the humble servant Jesus who is, who is so willing to be lowly and humble as to become a man, as to become a servant, as to, as to stand silent in front of false accusation and be crucified as a common criminal. This is the humble man Jesus who has ascended on the clouds into heaven and taken a seat at the throne of God to reign. This tells us something that we must grasp. This Jesus is the King. He's the King. The one that all of the creation was made for and has been longing for. 
in establishing Jesus as the king and lifting him up and placing him on the throne, God is fulfilling a long-ago-made promise. It's one of the points made throughout the Gospels, throughout this Gospel. The angel, when he came to Mary in chapter 1 and announced the birth of the baby, said to her, this one, this baby, will be the son of God and he will sit on the throne of his father David and reign over the house of Jacob forever with a kingdom that will not end ever. And that made sense to her. She didn't say, what are you talking about? It made sense to her because she knew the Old Testament promises. that God had promised to send a king to rule like David, but one better than David. One who would set up a kingdom like God always meant for his creation to be. A kingdom that would have a life in it that God always meant for life to be. A kingdom that would be ruled by a king that God always meant to be. One who was righteous and just and holy and pure and safe and joyful. He'd be that kind of a king and would set up a kingdom like that in which a life like that could be experienced and enjoyed, a life of shalom, of whole peace, of righteousness and justice. A kingdom that we, we can conceptualize and that we long for but which doesn't exist. Because ever since the fall, we've been people broken gone astray, and everything we touch then is wrecked. We're wrecked within, and everything we, we touch falls apart because we are fallen. There is no one righteous, and there is no peace on earth. And so we need a king, a king to fix it all. And kindly, here he is. God has sent him to us like he promised he kept his word. He did it. And this promised king has come to rule for deliverance. Jesus is the king promised, and he's the king who comes to rule for, for deliverance. But it's an amazing kind of deliverance. You might think, and, and, and sometimes when we use the word king, it sounds to us, no matter how it's pronounced, it sounds like king. It sounds like might, rule. This is a sweet king. It should sound like king. Oh, a king. Indeed, he has all might. But it is a might that comes to us and is cloaked in, in remarkable meekness because how he acts to deliver is amazing and mysterious and beautiful because he doesn't use brute force. You know, when kings, when kings, when when those kinds of kings arrive into a realm that's all messed up. They pull out their sword and start putting stuff in order. And this is a king who does something remarkable. <laughs> remarkable. He comes to put things in order, but he comes to put them in order as a suffering servant. He is indeed now seated on the throne and is working to bring all of the creation to heal under his authority. But he's doing that. Now in this time, doing that in gospel grace and mercy. We see this king, we see this king begin to bring the, the creation under control all through this gospel. What does he do? He heals people of, of diseases of all sorts, physical maladies. He heals people of demonic oppression and in so doing brings under dominion the evil spiritual forces. He controls the forces of nature for the good of his people. 
He puts down, he, he confronts false teaching and, and manipulative, extortionist, controlling teaching from, from wicked people. He counters it and undoes it. We see that all throughout this gospel, it's, a, it's designed to show us this is what the, the character of this king is like. But if he's going to fix this, he first has to fix this. And this is where it's most unique. How does he fix what's broken within us? By taking onto himself the judgment due us. Who ever heard of a king who died to extend his reign? That's the end of your reign. Not the beginning of it. Who ever heard of a king who made himself a, a suffering subject, a servant, so as, as to gain control of a world and make it right? That's, that's bizarre. That's what Jesus did, though. He takes on himself the penalty due to us for our lawlessness, for our brokenness. And in so doing, he frees us from the dominion of sin, from the penalty due us, and then he makes us spiritually new people frees us from the bondage that sin holds over us. He grants us forgiveness and makes us new people. And in so doing, that's how he dethrones us and dethrones the world and enthrones himself in our hearts. He makes us new people, gives us new eyes so that we see that we see something beautiful, him. We see something good and right, him, and are moved to follow it. He wins us by wooing, not by force. It's amazing. It's amazing. This is the king that makes new individuals, and then making new individuals makes new communities from us. Luke wants his readers to see that to see the nature, to see the character of this king, to see how this king comes to his throne through a meek gospel mercy rather than through might. And he wants us to see it so that more than just knowing it, so that we turn to him. Repent. Turn to him. And follow him. Our trouble in life is that we forget that. That's our trouble. Whether you're a Christian or not, the trouble is that we forget or maybe don't know. That we miss the fact that Jesus is the king. And we are made to follow him. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a follower of the king? There's no fear in that, but great comfort in that, that here's one who reigns, who has the whole of the world right in the palm of his hand and reigns controlling the world, holding it in the palm of his hand to do good to his followers to honor his name and to do you good. That's one that you can follow without fearing. It's one that you can follow in hope. It's one that you can follow surrendering all of life to him, knowing that I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but you do, and I know who you are. You're the one that God promised to send to save and you act towards me in grace and in mercy to do me good. I trust you. That's what it is to follow a king like that. That's what we are made for. 
And this is the one, Jesus. The one whom we were made to turn to and to follow, always repenting, constantly turning to him. Your will be done. I may have plans, I may have thoughts, but not those things. Your will be done, Father. That brings us into the sweet life of the kingdom. Not delivered to it by brute force, but by gospel renewal. That's the way of the king. And that's good news. Luke writes a long book to show us this Jesus. To show us his character. And now here at the end, to cement in our minds, that's the one who is sitting on the throne in heaven, reigning. Trust him. Follow him. He's the king I promised to send, says the Lord. He's the king who delivers you. Jesus. So there's the first big takeaway from the Gospel of Luke. The kingship of this Jesus and our call to follow him and to put all of our all on the table in front of him, to lay all of life there beneath his authority and so in him to find life. Follow Jesus the King. How does he do this? How does he exercise his reign? And how do we do this? How do we put all of our all in front of him? That's, that's, a, that's a tough ask. That brings us to the second point. God has blessed us with what we need to experience Christ's reign. God has blessed us with what we need to experience Christ's reign. So not just showing it to us, not just telling us in words, showing us in, in these pictures here, these, these stories of his life. But, so that's, that's outside of us. More than outside of us, he wants us to experience it. And so he's given us what we need so that we can experience the reign of this king. Verse 50 as Jesus is taken up, in fact, 51 says he, it's at the same time, while he's being taken up, he's blessing his people. It says that twice. So this blessing, this act of blessing, at its root, what that's about is pronouncing or declaring, we might say, good towards some other person or some other group. And the context would determine if that means more like you are good, I declare, you are good. Essentially, that's kind of like praise. Or, maybe in a different context, to you be good. So you are good or to you be good, an expression about something positive that one party, the, the blesser, either wants to or knows is going to, to come upon this other party. So he's declaring so as to inform and encourage. So down in 53, as we'll see, blessing God occurs down there. And in that context, it's praise. It's declaring, God, you are good. But here, Jesus is not praising his people. He's doing the second one. To you, be good. Some good is going to come upon you, to you, for you. And since Jesus is giving the blessing, it's certain it's going to happen. There's a great good that will come, that will come upon you. What does he have in mind? Well, what comes to our minds? What do we usually think of or mean when we say, I'm blessed? Or we're blessed people. To you be health and wealth and wisdom. Your children will live long and prosper. You will be happy 
and successful and safe and strong. You will have a a good career and a nice car and a sweet house. You're blessed. Now, maybe not all those things, but somewhere in there is what we often mean when we think about I'm blessed or you're blessed. That's attached somehow or another. That's what's attached to the concept of blessed by God. But Jesus has something different in mind. As Luke presents things to us, we can more easily follow the point. It's as if Jesus says, I'm going away, you're staying here. You will be my witnesses in the world, and it's a world that's hostile, and you'll proclaim to them, live among them, and while living among them, you're going to struggle with your own flesh and temptations. And though I'm on the throne, that's somewhere else, far away, and you can't see me. And you're going to sometimes struggle to see the kingdom enacted among you. It won't be total and absolute yet. That's the situation. That's what's happening. I'm going. You're staying. Be blessed. And he rises away. What do they need right there? What what do we need right there? Not a sweet house. And not health. And not wealth. What blessing would match and encourage in that situation, would match that need right there? Well, there's a hint in how verse 49 comes right before this. This is part of the reason I think Luke skipped 40 days here, so that he could write it 49 back to back with 50. He gives a little hint there that this has something to do with the promise from the Father. There's a hint. And it's confirmed in Acts chapter 1. If we look at Acts chapter 1, and from last week, Acts 1 and here at the end of Luke, they're written by the same guy, and they're about the same things. They're kind of like two, part 1 and part 2 stitched together. So we've got a lot of overlap. He's describing the same situation in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, in other words, at the very same time, just like in our passage here in Luke, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. Acts 1 ties the pronouncement of verse 8 to the ascension of verse 9, just like happens here in Luke. The blessing and the ascension tied together. You put those, those two passages together, I think we're supposed to see something that's hinted at here in our own passage in verse 49. The blessing that he pronounces upon them, what's going to come to you? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to come to you. Be blessed. I'm leaving. You're not going to have me with you, but you are going to have my spirit within you. You're going to be just fine. You're going to be blessed. Blessed with the outpouring, the fullness, the presence of the spirit of God. And therefore you will have power and you will be witnesses. This is the blessing they were commanded to await and they did with expectation and anticipation. They knew they needed it and that he would send it and then he did at Pentecost. It's important to see this right now because we're kind of, because I'm not going to keep on preaching into Acts, we we kind of miss where this goes. But where it's supposed to go, and the overlap makes it really, really clear, where it's supposed to go is directly to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, and the continuing, as Luke says in Acts chapter 1, the continuing of what Jesus is doing and teaching. 
It's all part of the same story. We can be, we have been, we are a blessed people because we live on the other side of Pentecost. We live in the era of the outpoured Spirit of God. And we are meant to experience that Spirit of God filling us moment by moment, day by day, as the normal Christian life. The life that God means for his people to live is the life of the book of Acts. A life in which we, his people, are filled with, moved by, empowered, driven, directed. Those are different ways of talking about filled. A people of the Spirit. A people filled with God himself moving within us. This is how he exercises his reign, his kingdom rule within us, is that the Spirit of God sits on the throne in our hearts and speaks to us truth and opens our eyes to the beauty of God and moves us to follow his decrees, as was long promised in the Old Testament. A people who experience the reign of God within as we experience the filling of God's Spirit within and then who walk into a world in which the Spirit has been outpoured to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and call in God's people from every tongue and tribe and nation. It's the normal Christian life, the life of Spirit-filling. We have to see this. We have to see this as part of Luke's story, even though it's, it's right here at the at the the balance point of Luke's whole story. Because if we only look back and see only the past, what we have is we have truth about Jesus and his reign. But here's the problem that we, we Christians sometimes, in, in, with well-intending well hearts that we sometimes step into, is that we attempt, that sounds too active, we're not trying to do this, but we do this. We focus on truth independent from a surrender to God's Spirit to press the truth into us. Here's what I mean. I read, suppose I read the Sermon on the Mount. You remember one of the big points of the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's the truth. And we see it as the truth. And we focus on it. And we see that's, there's Jesus proclaiming to us the Christian life, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and giving away our cloak and turning the other cheek, etc. I need to become a better lover of my enemies. I want to follow Jesus. I want to walk that Christian life. There it is. This one's my enemy right here. How can I love this one better? And we're focused on the, the need to love. I know who it applies to. I know what it would look like. But accidentally I omitted, oh God, help me to do this impossible thing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Oh God. And it's in that, oh God, help me that I'm turning to him to his spirit and saying, will you reign in my heart to do what I'm supposed to do? We, we are prone to miss this first step because the second step is so clear to us. But we'll never get to loving enemy if the spirit of God does not do the miraculous and make me a different person. You have to become a different person. One who sees this enemy, and I'm just picking one example, one who sees this enemy and sees God and realizes and believes that what God will give you far surpasses what this enemy will take from you. More than know it, you have to believe it. 
You have to be a person who actually buys that, who sees it and buys it, and then who longs, who yearns that Jesus would be honored in this person's life, this person who hates you. That ain't in me, naturally. It's, it's probably not in you either, but it's certainly not in me naturally. I want to avoid that person rather than draw up next to him and love him, her. I need to become a different person by the power of the Spirit of God changing me. And so I stand here in front of the law and say, there's the law's requirement of me to love my enemy. Oh, God, help me. And I humbly cry out to the Spirit of God, make me a different person. Please direct me, change me, renew me from the inside out, Spirit of God. We easily miss that point. In our honest and good-hearted desire to read the Sermon on the Mount and do it, The only way we do it is by the filling of the Spirit. Thank God he's given us the Spirit. Don't miss him. So let me put it in a couple of simple phrases to to break down the filling of the Spirit idea. Let me break it down in a couple of simple phrases. If you write down humble repentance, thoughtful, surrendered dependence on God, and prayer that calls out for God's work, God's power, God's changing influence. Humble repentance. God, I am not like this. There's the Sermon on the Mount. I read it. It's in English. I get it. I'm not like that. Help Humble repentance, thoughtful, surrendered dependence on God. Lord, here's what I, here's what I need to be different. Uh, here's where I need to be different. Help, please change me. And all that is prayer, right? There's a prayerful turning, a calling out to him for God's work, for God's power, for God's changing influence. That is how King Jesus, far away in heaven, exerts his kingdom reign in my heart right here by the work of the Spirit of God in me, in you. That's how he exercises his kingdom reign in us and then throughout all the world as we, as we pray things like that for other people. Lord, would you open her eyes? Would you open his eyes? I can't do that. I can speak but only you can change. That's how he reigns in us and in the world. So do not miss, do not overlook, do not forget the necessity and really the privilege of the spirit-filled life. It's the normal Christian life to turning towards God and asking his spirit to move in us and to own us and to change us. It's accidentally easy for us who who are very Bible-oriented, very Scripture-oriented people to forget that peace. Don't overlook the Spirit's ministry. He has given us the Spirit of God as a great blessing to us so that we can experience the kingdom kingdom reign of this King Jesus. It is of utmost importance and utmost benefit to us. And when we walk in that and experience the King, experience the King by His Spirit, what results is wonderful. And so here's the last point. A response, really, to the first couple observations. Worship him in joy to the praise of God the Father. 
worship him in joy to the praise of God the Father. Verse 52, he ascends, and they worshiped him. First time in the whole gospel that is said, right here at the very end. Frequently, throughout the gospel, frequently the disciples or the crowds are in awe of Jesus. They marvel at him. Or like the centurion whose servant Jesus healed, some respond in, in respectful faith. When they see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, they are, they are dumbfounded and afraid. Often they see some sort of a miracle, like when he, he heals the paralytic, and people glorify God for what God has done. Read that kind of language several times. Jesus heals the paralytic, and they glorify God for what God has done. And maybe they praise Jesus as being a great prophet or something. But worship of Jesus, that's different. It's never been directed towards Jesus until now. For the first time, it appeared right to them to worship Jesus. And Jesus didn't stop them in the middle of his blessing. The angels who were, who were present, we know this from Acts, they didn't stop them after he departed. No voice from heaven confronted this as an act of blasphemy and nothing within their own hearts anymore, with their own, we've got to see this, their own very strongly religiously conditioned hearts There's nothing in them that would have thought to worship a man. They are very strongly religiously conditioned against that. All the stuff that they saw from him earlier didn't draw them to worship him. Blasphemy they took very seriously was the charge that, that got Jesus executed in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. To make a man someone to be worshipped is way, way beyond how they're used to thinking. They saw him walk on water and calm a storm and heal leprosy and reattach a severed ear and never worshipped him. But now they do. Now having their eyes opened to see the scriptures and seeing the resurrection and seeing in it the proof of the full deity of this son and seeing him riding on the clouds up to the throne in heaven, now they worship him as God. He is not just a powerful human king. He is not just a great prophet or teacher. He's God. He's God in flesh. They worship him as God and obey him with great joy. Told us to go to the city. Okay, we'll go to the city. They go back there, even though what's in the city? A ton of people and a religious civil authority structure, which is all dead set against them and Jesus. Filled with great joy, they walk right back into the hornet's nest because really, who cares? We're, we're to take this sort of attitude. Uh, who cares maybe sounds flippant, but, but really, he rose from the dead. What can man do to us? We saw him ascend to heaven. What can man do to us? God has acted to fulfill the centuries-long promise and has accomplished deliverance. What can man do to us? Sure, he's going to get, you know, the, the people, man, man is going to get angry, for sure. But we see in the book of Acts these disciples, having seen this Jesus and now then filled with this spirit, 
speak to the very people who killed Jesus and say to them, what am I going to do, obey you or God? See that. He's God. He's the king, and he's also God. That's what that means. He's God. They've come to see Jesus in a totally different light and are filled with, it with a tremendous confidence and a full-hearted joy. Will they ever be afraid? Oh, for sure. Will they ever sorrow? Indeed. But they are now cast with a, a, a new makeup, a new character, a rejoicing character. They see him in a totally different light. But notice this too, verse 53. The changes that they've gone through don't cause them to break with the past, but really they see it as a completion of the past. This, of course, was implied in all the instances when he opened up the Scriptures and showed them in the Old Testament. This is, this is always the plan. It's implied there. But we see that they head back to the temple blessing God. They have no problem going to the temple continually to keep on blessing God, that is, praising God, declaring His goodness and the wonderfulness of God for creating and executing this plan and doing them this good they see themselves as finally getting it, as finally understanding the whole plan of God and coming into the fullness, the full experience of God's dealings and promises with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the prophets. It's all completed, not changed. One Christian author, in a book that he was writing about Christian end times things, eschatology, end times things, made this comment. It's worth thinking about. He said, we, we should realize something. We often think of, we list, we list the world's religions and we have Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity. He said, well, hold on a second. Technically, we made a mistake there. In his point, he said, Christianity is not a different religion from biblical Judaism. Here's, here's the quote exactly. Christianity is Jewish eschatology. That's what they got. They didn't think of themselves as starting something new. They saw the whole thing is one. It began, and now it has been completed. This is the end of the biblical faith. Not a new faith, not a different faith. It's the end of biblical faith. The fulfillment of it. We usually talk as if it's two different things, but it's not. Christianity is actually just Jewish eschatology. As long as you properly connect it all and understand how the Messianic King Jesus was the prophet like no other that was promised. He's the one who taught God's law with authority and power. He's, if you understand how he's the one who fulfilled that law in his own obedience, if you see how King Jesus took the curse of God's punishment on our lawlessness as he died on the tree. If you see how he was the sacrificial lamb and was the great high priest who offered it so that wrath could pass over the people and the temple curtain that separates could be removed. If you understand how King Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, blessed Israel that all the nations would be blessed in him. 
and called in all the faithful from all the tongues and tribes and nations and made them sons of Abraham, the father of faith. And you realize that in trusting Christ, we are not setting aside the God of the Old Testament, but rather thanking him for his faithfulness to keep his promises to save a people for himself. In worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who is. It's not Jesus or the God Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's not Jesus or the Creator God. It's not Jesus or the God of Moses and the God of David and the God of Isaiah. It's rather Jesus gets us into fellowship with that God. It is God met in Christ. Not or Christ. This is biblical faith. We come to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. The work of one true God, triune in nature, planning, sending, executing, and then enacting Father, Son, Spirit. This is the Creator, the one who loved his people, came himself to save them, poured out himself to exert his reign over them until he brings us home. This is the one we worship. We worship God through the Son, by the Spirit. As Mary's saying, he who is mighty has done a great thing. Luke wants us as a people. He wants his initial reader to understand all this. His initial reader who's challenged to think, what do I make of this Judaism and of this Jesus? He wants his initial reader and all of us to understand God and the work that God has done in Christ to save you. And that should lead to worship and rejoicing and obedience. This is the king you want. This is the king who's good. This is the king who has given himself to save you and who is going to carry you into a perfect kingdom. You will sit down at feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even though you're a Gentile, most of you. That's a remarkable thing. That's a good thing accomplished by God in Christ for us. Let me pray. Father, I say thank you to you. I and maybe most of us, we are accustomed to to assuming that Jesus is for us. We should say thank you that Jesus is for us. We wouldn't have sought him ourselves. And in fact, most of us are separate from the promises in, in our flesh. We're outside, we're separate from the branch. You made Jesus for us, for all nations. And in him you call us to yourself and give us your spirit now that we can commune with you. And I say thank you for that. Will you draw out from us praise, blessing, blessed be your name. Will you move us to, to humble dependence on you through your spirit at work in us? Will you draw us to worship the Son and rejoice in him? You are good.
Thank you. Will you build your church? Will you fill us with your spirit and call us regularly to continue being filled with your spirit? And will you use us as witnesses to draw in people to Jesus? We trust ourselves to you and say thank you. You are good. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.